This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. You're listening to 3CR. I'm Kurt Johnson. Recently, there has been a lot of talk in the newspapers about food security as a result of COVID. We've all seen the empty supermarket shelves, which are now thankfully full. We're just trying to figure out now what it all means. We have been assured by the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources in a report hurriedly released this April that we in fact have nothing to worry about. The spin in that report and the speed with which it was released is a clear indication that the federal government itself is worrying. Yet the discussion surrounding food security has skewered some of the basic assumptions we have about how much we can rely on full supermarket shelves in this country, especially when we consider it in relation to climate change. We know that the models built on the past no longer apply, which means that we cannot look to the, sa- to the future with the same confidence that we did. To look at this in detail, we will be talking with former Deputy Chief of the Royal Australian Air Force, John Blackburn, who has analysed the resilience of the food supply chain as a national security issue in Australia. We will also be speaking with Richard Heath, the Executive Director of the Australian Farm Institute, who co-authored the the, uh, Changes in the Air, Defining the Need for an Australian Agricultural Climate Change Policy, which was a report released last June about Australia's ability to confront climate change and its predicted impact on agriculture. First up, though, we'll cross to Tasman to speak with the writer Laura Jean McKay in New Zealand about her decision to cut emissions while travelling and how it opened up some new adventures. We'll also be talking with her about her new book, The Animals in That Country. Stay tuned. Help, help. Hello down there. Are you okay? No, I'm, I'm stuck. You're stuck? Yeah, I'm stuck in a country that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab your rope? No, there's a rock on me. I, I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups and indifferent mainstream media coverage. Dear God, what on earth can I do to help? Go now and donate money to Beyond Zero Emissions. Great, what do I do? Head to bze.org.au forward slash donate. Anything else? Yeah, keep your receipt. Your donation is tax deductible. I'll go right away. Um, in 2012, Laura Jean McKay, together with Tom, laid down $1,500 a piece to travel by boat from Melbourne to Auckland rather than flying. The journey planned as eight days took 11 because of industrial action in Auckland. So Tom and Laura got three days free. She has written about that journey, and we spoke with her on a pre-recorded call. Laura, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me here. No worries. I'm looking forward to it. First question is first, why make such a journey the hard way? (laughs) Yeah, it was a real, it's a really, really long way to get to New Zealand. I'll I'll say that. Um, I was thinking a lot about climate change and my partner Tom Doig writes about climate change. So it was very much in the household 
and I started, I think I watched The Age of Stupid um, from memory and I started thinking about what was the thing that I loved doing the most and would be hardest to give up. Um, and I realised that flying was the thing. Flying was the thing I did a lot of. I did a calculation and worked out that I'd spent two weeks of my life mm. in the air. Uh, that was how much I loved it. Um, for other people, that would be a lot more, I think. And I knew that that would be a really, really difficult thing to stop. And so I decided to, um, because I was looking at the impacts of, of flying and personal flying on climate change. And it seemed like it was pretty massive. Yeah. Uh, and maybe something that, that I should do. Yeah. So you, you, you go into detail. So there's a post that I'm going to put in the um, show notes where you talk about the ship as a uh, floating nation. Uh, and it was a very, very diverse nation, wasn't it? Was, what were some of the characters that were on board? It was so diverse. It was like, we called it the Russia Pens. Um, so it was this amazing blend of often um, Filipino crew and and Russian um, captains and, um, and in command. And so we were... As, as passengers, we were invited to eat with the captain and very much expected to eat with the captain. A few days in, we found out that there was this. So we were eating Russian food, which, you know, has a certain wonderful stodginess about it from my perspective. Um, and a few days later, we found out that in another section, there was this Filipino feast happening. <laughs> and, and we sort of joined on, in on that much to the captain's um, unhappiness so it was it was like you became part of these incredible cultures um but also and i say men because it was an all-male crew i was the only woman on board um it was also uh, staffed by people who often found it quite difficult to live in the world. Um, you know, some men had several families in different countries. Um, others found it really hard when they went back to their lives um, on land and, and longed for the ocean again. Um, but also, this, was, this is a job that, um, you know, people from places like the Philippines, it's a really great job. You get, you get fed, um, you get, you know, a, a a comparatively good wage um, and can sort of support your family. So there were people who were really there for their children. Yeah. Um, we learnt about what it's like um, to party in um, Kazan Tip. We got wind of Filipino hip hop. Um, we tried food. It was just such a, it was such a strangely welcoming environment uh, to be part of this, this ship world. Amazing. Um, so I've, I've tried as much as possible to fly, uh, to travel without flying. So I've, I've been to China, to Iran, via Berlin without catching a single plane. I guess the one thing that I loved about train travel, and maybe this applies to both, is the, the slowness and the camaraderie that, that comes with it. Um, in the Trans-Siberian third class, you have like 60 people to a carriage. Uh, there's no phone reception and days before the next stop. Did you get a sense it was the same for people working on the ship? I don't know that um, that I love the way you put that because it is like the the journey becomes the destination when you're slow traveling mm. um, and that's a really really beautiful thing to give yourself over to for people working on ships it's not necessarily like mm. that um, one sailor described um, working on the ship um, that every day is a Monday um, there's sort of this endless groundhog like day cycle um, I think they work in shifts of six 
four or six hours and there's there's this shift called like the dog shift is um you know the horrible shift from 2am to to whenever um so he said every day on the ship is a monday and every day at home is a sunday so this is certainly a sailor that longed for home and found the ship life pretty (laughs) grueling (laughs) i i really like well, uh, what I like about your story is that it's a lighthearted take on a serious issue. Um, I've grappled with that myself. And the only way that I can get through it is compartmentalizing it because it just seems too hard. Like I like your adventurous and how you embrace the challenge. Um, was it successful as an experiment? And would you recommend it as a mode of travel? I think it was actually quite life-changing. As soon as I decided that I wasn't going to fly, I realised that um, I lived on a giant island (laughs) and wanted to get off. So I started investigating this other form, which was cargo ship travel. And there's these wonderful people who work in in passenger cargo ship travel. They're obsessed with ships. All all shipping people Mm. are obsessed with ships, whether they love them or hate them. So you go into this world um, and even the booking process was like going back in time or going to a parallel universe where there were papers to fill out and strange forms and odd instructions um you know about special shoes for the soot and you know Uh, get sticky sticky plugs so that you can stick all your stuff down because of the pitching and rolling it was just it, it really was like entering a country that that doesn't really exist anywhere else and um, the the journey on the journey, I interviewed a lot of sailors, and we made short films, and mm. sort of turned it into a bit of an art project, much to the amuse- amusement and annoyance, I'm sure, yeah. of the crew. Um, so it and uh, there's something about being in the middle of the ocean, especially when you live in a place like Australia, which is you know this endless amount of gorgeous land. Being in the middle of the ocean and not being able to see anything else, there is nothing else but water um, and you're cut off from the internet um, and your mobile phone doesn't work and the only information you can rely on is, you know, from a, a fairly intense Russian captain mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you just depart from from the intensity of the world and you you fall into the intensity of another world, which is no less intense, but at least it's it's sort of sort of a, a break, I suppose. And as well as that, I spent a lot of time thinking about slow travel, um, thinking about other ways to get um, to places that weren't necessarily ripping through the sky and mm. and dumping a whole heap of, of fuel at a moment's notice. Totally. And and 2012 was a you did a whole year without catching a plane. So what was the sort of thought process that led up led up to that? Mm. Um, well, yeah, the, the lead up was really that that panic um, that I was directly contributing to climate change, um, you know, in, in my lifestyle. Um, and, and so sort of, in, and yeah, embracing embracing the slowness of the mm. world, I suppose. Um, and I found that it, it created quite a few uncomfortable conversations. Um, All right. I would be talking to people at parties and they would say, you're going to hate me, but I'm flying to Italy to mm. do a degustation because oh. <laughs> a restaurant said they had a place for me and then I'm flying back. I'm only going for the weekend. Oh. And um, it, 
it was as though people had felt that they had to confess to me um, as though I was judging mm. them when really, really I was, I was very much focused on judgment of myself, um, which in a way I think is what we need to do partly in the climate movement is, is there's a lot of projection and you're doing this and you're doing that. Um, but it can be quite nice to turn the spotlight on yourself and say, okay, well, what can I do? And, um, how can that broaden out, um, to other experiences that maybe other people will enjoy or, um, will change other people's minds. And for me, that's through writing. Uh, and so I, I, produced a sort of a, a weird blog and <laughs> and wrote some articles and now I'm, I'm turning back to it again and starting to write about the experience. Yeah, I've, I've actually got um, a quote from one of your blog posts about flightlessness that I, I, I want to read and it, I think it really hits the nail on the head when it, you, you talk about the guilt of being a global citizen. Um, in a time when we're wrestling to curtail emissions, um, I'll just read it out. Um, I love tins, I wash plastic bags, I buy a heater that uses as much power as a light bulb, I shop locally and think globally and protest for carbon tax and would like to have protests against forestry, but I was busy that weekend and I bike everywhere, especially in the rain and I care about people too, so I fly all around the world to help them. This is in particular reference to rich Australians volunteering and working in aid to help developing countries. Um, in my job, I work in the same sector, um, and I found no easy answer, especially living here in Australia. We have a situation where the end justifies the means, or when you're talking about aid. Um, either you help and emit carbon or you don't. Where are you on this issue now? <laughs> um, still bumbling. <laughs> I mean, I think there is a feeling that um, to care about something, especially in another country, you need to go there. Um, on the other hand, um, there is a broader, um, you know, um, sort of fairly racist movement, which, you know, is, is very concerned about, um, you know, parts of Asia like China becoming extremely global and embracing global travel. Um, but I wonder, um, <laughs> and that becomes, that becomes a race thing. Like why do, why do I as a white Australian get mm. to go somewhere and have this new experience and feel like I'm helping someone and um, you know, someone from China doesn't get to go somewhere else and, and perhaps go to university and, and also contribute um, to another society. Um, so uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what what the answer to this is. I think the pandemic is a really interesting point um, of discussion in terms of what we're doing um, in our globe trotting ways. I was just looking at a blog, a BBC blog that was um, citing the impact of, of airplane travel on the world and how much um, CO2 is emitted. And then there was a, there was a um, strict warning um, on the page saying, um, you know, of course, plane travel is going to go up and up and up in the next few years. <laughs> but, and that was only in 2019. But now we're in 2020. We're all grounded, literally. Um, we can't go out. Um, we've discovered that we can connect to each other um, on different platforms and that there are a lot of opportunities uh, in that. Um, so will we embrace this more or will we go back to our flinging ourselves around the world? And also another question that's raised from that is plane travel the worst thing? <laughs> um, 
should we, there, is, there are certainly arguments that say um, focusing on individual um, carbon emissions, you know, you can do that as much as you want, but the fact is there are still enormous fossil fuel companies, um, government is supporting them, um, why not put our energy into lobbying rather than the guilt of, of uh, individual emission? Yeah, and that's the, yeah. Okay, we always sort of ping pong between those two, uh, those two points, those two sides as well, which is just like, ah, oh, you know, it's the, it's the corporations, but then it's like, well, you know, I, that doesn't mean I can fly everywhere that I want with, with total impunity. I have to take some responsibility and I, I haven't resolved through it either. I think it's different for everyone. Um, but we've also had uh, George Mombio on our show before, and I really, wow. really love uh, the quote um, about love miles, which is um, meeting someone overseas and it being immoral to spew out the carbon to make the journey and immoral not to. Um, and so you're, uh, are you in Australia or New Zealand at the moment? I'm actually in New Zealand at the moment. So um, going... Ha- do you travel back and forth? Um, do you do you have love miles? Have you resolved that? <laughs> I haven't resolved that. Um, I mean, this year I was going to be um, expelling a lot of love miles. Um, my plan was to go back to Australia a lot. Uh, I was going to be doing a book tour. Um, I was going to be hugging friends and relatives yeah. and um, all the babies. Uh, so it was actually going to be probably one of my a peak year for plane travel for me. Um, I, I think I was going to be in London at one point as well. Uh, so that, um, I mean, that's that's just astonishing. You know, me looking looking at myself from 2012, um, it would be interesting to see what blog post I would create about myself yeah. <laughs> now. Um, but, of course, the, yeah, the pandemic has, has brought me back to that that time of non-travel slightly yeah. unwillingly <laughs> yeah. yeah there's also the option of offsetting but that is mm. uh which i've tried to do through my work um offset stuff but i still don't think it's guilt-free yeah i'm i'm terribly cynical every time i press the offset button i i wonder where it's going <laughs> yeah. um i think i did do a bit of research into offsetting at one point and there might be a blog post buried away mm. uh in there about that um i think there's there's good and bad options but i i wonder how much it does um it uh, with plane travel i feel like i feel like there is more we can do i feel like it's 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 a, it's not as black and white as we see it to be um there there are there are actually a little tricks to plane travel like offsetting um actually flying during the day Mm. is better um because um the sunlight the sky sort of reflects back um the emissions whereas at night time it all it all gets sucked into the atmosphere um doing a a straightforward flight um so paying a bit extra to just go from a to b because a lot of the emissions are in the takeoff and landing when you're Mm. cruising you actually the planes don't actually release very much so um rather than you know doing that cheap hopping flight from country to country trying to get there just straight can actually do a lot so i think i think we can think about it in a more nuanced way and 
there's also a lot of scope for developing more efficient um, mm. fuel, more efficient planes, uh, which would do a lot and, and actually make plane travel quite comparable to car travel in that way. Yeah, amazing. Um, you recently completed a novel, The Animals in That Country. Um, I'm really interested in that. Please tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So uh, The Animals in That Country looks at what would happen if the language barrier was taken away hmm. between humans and other animals. Uh, so it's really putting humans and animals on an equal communications plane. And I wanted to write about that because I think um, humans, we consider ourselves, you know, a completely different um, we don't consider ourselves animals, you know, we, there's humans and then there's all the other animals. And often language is held up as the big, the big barrier there. Um, we have language, so we're so much better than all the other ones. And I thought, well, what if that was taken away? What if we could understand what animals were saying with their bodies? Uh, and of course, that launch, launches the main character, Jean, who's a a zoo worker who loves a drink, um, she's a proud grandma, but a pretty terrible role model, into this journey through Australia uh, with a talking dingo by her side, um, trying to work out what it is to be a human in this animal kingdom. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, we'll definitely <laughs> include a, a link to that and um, the... Uh, piece that you wrote about that trip uh, across the Tasman in there. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much. It's so great to talk about this. You know that feeling when... I read the news today, oh boy. And everything points to... It's the end of the world as we know it. And you just feel so... Just because. It's the but don't worry, there is a way you can. Beyond Zero Emissions is one of Australia's most respected climate change think tanks. By supporting us with your donations, you will help keep our two radio shows and podcast channels on air. But we do need your... First show takes us to the bleeding edge of technological research, showing the latest in climate change solutions. Think of it a little bit like... The second show looks at how the community is responding to the climate change threat, locally and globally, because some of the best ideas come from... To donate now, head to bze.org.au or visit us on Facebook or Twitter. Once upon a time, John Blackburn, uh, Order of Australia, was FA-18 fighter pilot for the Royal Australian Air Force. He was so proficient as a pilot and thinker, he rose to the position of deputy chief before hanging up his jumpsuit and becoming a consultant. His time in the Air Force allowed him to develop a mind that thinks on a deeply strategic level. This mode of thinking of systems analysis has meant he has advised everyone from Lockheed Martin to the Australian Institute of Energy. It's a time of thinking that leaves little it's a type of thinking that leaves little room for spin. Recently, John has contributed to the discussion about climate change as a threat to Australian national security. We spoke with John on a pre-recorded call. 
John, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss this with us. You're welcome, Kurtz. Good to talk to you. Great. Um, first of all, uh, how does climate change represent a threat to national security? Well, national security, when it's talked about in public, the, the government and politicians often talk, often talk about defence or cyber terrorism or terrorists. But when we talk about national security, it's about our security as a nation, our community and our place in the world. And it's far more than just a military or a, or a terrorist attack. It's about our way of life. It's about our resilience. And climate change is posing a potential existential threat to us that will threaten our security and resilience if we don't, as a global community, pay more attention to it. Because in a pandemic, you can try and quarantine yourself and then try and come up with a vaccine within a year or two. If the full scale of climate change impacts us, as the scientists are predicting, you can't quarantine yourself from it. You can't sort of shut down for a year or two and hope for a vaccine. It's with us for decades and decades. It's something you can't escape, and that's the real threat. So why has the government been so slow to react to climate change framed in this way? I think what's happened, <clears throat> climate change is a very difficult thing for people to imagine. I mean, after last summer's bushfires and the floods, I think a lot more people are sort of getting a sense of what climate change impacts could be. But what's happened over time it started to split into a political argument. You know, it's the left and the right. And people are trying to denigrate each other's views instead of saying, hang on, if the scientists are saying this, it's not a global conspiracy, there's an issue here that we have to deal with. And whilst it's being discussed, it's very hard to imagine what it looks like because it's beyond our experiences. The scale of change is beyond it. And I often talk about looking at tsunami, yeah, I saw the edge of the Aceh tsunami in Malaysia in the area I, I was in, it killed 60 or 70 people. The wave that hit us there was fairly small, but even looking at it, and I was on the 15th story of a balcony looking at it come, he looked at this thing and I knew it was a tsunami, but it, it's just hard to comprehend when you actually see it because that huge lump of water behind the wave is something you've never seen before. And you, it's like a fascinator staring at it, waiting to see what happens next. Climate change is like that. We haven't had that actual experience to relate to it. So it's something large that a lot of people just want to deny it's there or say, we'll worry about it when it comes. And that's what our fundamental problem is. Now, you spoke of uh, two different mindsets when we, when we spoke earlier, uh, associated with climate change in the defence forces. Could you just um, explain those two mindsets for us, please? One of them there looks at what is the job the defence does. So in the case of humanitarian disaster relief and our defence forces did play a role, for example, in, in the tsunami recovery, you look at it in terms of those sorts of humanitarian operations are going to increase and they're going to become concurrent. So one problem there is how do you deal with that? Well, if it gets to the scale we're talking about, we're going to have that same disaster back in Australia. So it's not just a matter of us going overseas somewhere to help someone who's been hit by a cyclone or an earthquake. Uh, we've actually got that problem everywhere. And as we've seen in the pandemic crisis, when the problem occurs everywhere, then it's almost every country for themselves is some of the behaviours we've seen. 
the other way defense has looked at it is what does it mean to how they war fight? So in more complex environmental conditions, it's gonna give them a series of problems. The real challenge, which is not regularly discussed during my time in defense, is what does it mean for us as a society? <clears throat> so defense, like other organizations or departments, tends to look at it through the lens of what they do and what they anticipate having to do. What we don't do is look at it for a whole of society view. And that's what's missing, I think, in the way we deal with this within government in Australia. Great. I, I hear sometimes that um, climate change is considered as a threat multiplier um, it, it, within the military. Um, can, can you describe how that sort of mindset is a little bit misplaced? Well, when, it's not really misplaced because when you're looking at trying to do a military operation as we would conventionally think of it against a threat, when you add climate change on top of it, you really do multiply the threat multipliers because it's not only making the environment you're fighting in much more complicated, so that are you able to do it, but the environment you're dealing with not only has a military problem, it has a, a catastrophe going on. In other words, there's the environmental problem in the area you're operating and all those local societies and people there are being affected by it. So it, what it does is it layers a lot of things on top of each other. So right now we're trying to deal with a pandemic. But this next summer, if the bushfires come back, and it will, then we're going to be dealing with a pandemic and the bushfires at the same time. Are we really going to be bringing people from interstate and overseas to help us fight a bushfire down on the coast? Oh, that's going to give us a problem with the pandemic. So in that sense, that climate effect is a threat multiplier or a problem multiplier because you're dealing with many things at once. That makes it difficult. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. And this is what I really like about the way that you approach problems, which is your risk analysis of a particular sector is that you look at the entire system rather than just cherry picking a certain aspect. Now, this the systems approach to climate change is so important because it overlaps uh, in so many different areas. There's foreign policy, energy policy, water policy, indigenous rights, agriculture, the economy. I'm interested in the overlap between climate change and food security, and you, you've studied this at length. Could you please just explain that, that threat? Yeah, so at the start of this year, yeah, there were quite a bit of commentary and discussion about, yeah, is there a food security problem in Australia? So understandably, the government came out to try and calm everyone's fears and said there's no need to panic by, because in reality, most of what was happening in those shortages in the shops was not a food security problem or a supply chain problem, really. It was induced by people rushing to buy things because they thought they were going to run out. And in a supply chain that's set up to deliver goods just in time, you've got three parts. One's the consumer, the other one's the producer, and then you've got the actual pipeline, if you want, between the two of them. It's designed for lowest cost. So if the consumer runs out and buys a lot more stuff in a hurry, even if on the producer side you start to increase production, that pipeline, the distribution chain, can't cope with it because it's designed for a steady flow rate. So what happened with the panic buying was really induced by us, not by the system itself. But to calm everybody down, <clears throat> the government came out and said, we don't have a food security problem. We could feed, you know, 75 million people. <clears throat> and ABEARS, you know, the the uh, statistics group 
put out a study that said things like, you know, we export 75% of our rice and we <clears throat> export 71% of our meat. We've got so much capacity. So what they were trying to do there was calm people down saying there's no need to panic buy. And there isn't any need to panic buy. But are they right? So when you look at food security, things can change fairly quickly. So in January this year, a bunch of farmers got together and came out and said, look, the folks up in the Murray-Darling Basin have got a bit of a problem here. And what they said is today, Australia now imports most of its rice, half of its dairy, and a third of its wheat on the East Coast to make flour, bread, and pasta. And they said, three years ago, we were producing 60% of the nation's food. Today, after three consecutive years of not having enough water, we can't grow it. Okay, hang on a second. But in the last two months, the government said that we export 74% of our rice and we export 71% of our wheat. Surely the, what the farmers are saying can't be right. Well, actually, they're both right. But here's the problem. When you look at the fine print in what the government's just put out in the very, very tiny writing, which for an old person like myself is hard to read, it said this is the share of agricultural production by sector three-year average between 2015 to 2017, financial years. So they're giving you facts. The fact they're out of date is not highlighted. And the reality is that things change pretty quickly, as we've seen here just water allocation alone has got us to the stage where we're importing rice. I understand we've only got 5% of the crops produced. We're importing wheat now to the eastern part of Australia. So that is climate-induced with the loss of water. As we look forward in time, we are anticipating many more significant effects from climate change on food supplies. And analysis is out there from a range of organisations that said this is a problem coming. So. When you calm the population by putting out three to four year old data, I understand why they're doing it, but let's just say it's disingenuous. And what we need to have in this conversation is a thing that treats Australians as adults saying, look, there is no food supply crisis now. Don't go out and panic buy, we'll only create one. But what we've seen happen is with lack of water, our production has changed quite significantly. And whilst we do produce a lot of food, We've got to understand that you can't do that without fertilizers and fuels and packaging and certain ingredients that we have to import. So we know that there are risks we have to address. Some of those risks were buried in the bottom of that government report in more small writing that you have to click on to read. But there is an issue with food security that we can't ignore. It's an issue where the risk grows more as we look into the future. And whilst I can understand politicians saying, hey, we produce you know, three times more than we need or whatever, yeah, it really gives us a problem in giving them credibility when you find out what the real facts are. Now, you're working on a uh, report and a study at the moment because you're also you're the chairman of the IIER, which is the Institute for Integrated Economic Research of uh, Australia. Can you explain a little bit about that and how it feeds into what you were just talking about, about food security? Yeah, so we formed this institute in 2018 because what we saw that Australians, as a part of a global and regional community, we're going to go through massive transitions and changes in the next couple of decades. And going through those changes is going to be turbulent because 
you know, we, we can't keep life as it was. This is just the nature. If you think about our energy systems, we're going to a hybrid energy system, a lot of renewables, but a range of other capabilities in there. That transition will take decades, no matter how fast we want to do it. If we look at our economy, we've been going through some significant changes. And our sister institute in Europe says we're going to have some major economic crises or changes globally. This is not just an Australian problem. And if we look at the environment part of it, we have to do something about emissions. But we as Australia by ourselves won't have that impact. But we, working with other countries around the world collectively, collaboratively, as we've seen works during this current crisis, we need to address it. So we've been looking at those transition areas and we have produced a series of studies of how we can look at our resilience. The issues have really come to public attention because of the coronavirus and people are saying their confidence has been rattled a little bit <clears throat> and they're seeing in some areas, particularly when you can't get a face mask or we can see there's problems with drug supplies and ventilators, oh, perhaps we'd assumed a few too many things. So our study is to look at the resilience of us as a country and the resilience of our region because if we improve our resilience and there's a country like Indonesia next door to us is not resilient, then we're still not resilient as a country. So we're trying to work out what we should do, teamed with our neighbours and other countries around the world, to improve our resilience. Because whilst we are responding to the pandemic very well as a team, we were very poorly prepared for any crisis. We are not a resilient country. Could you just explain uh, very quickly about um, the role that social cohesion has in resilience? Yeah, the big problem is when you're going through big changes and the stresses, then you can start to see societies fall apart. Within America right now, this dealing with the coronavirus has turned into a political fight between the left and the right. That's crazy. In Australia, we've got a great example where both sides of politics and the unions and business and a whole range of people have teamed together to deal with a real big crisis. And that's fantastic. But we're not seeing that in America. You're not seeing that in England when they went through both the Brexit fight and now they're dealing with coronavirus. You're not seeing it in Europe. And what we're concerned about is when you're faced with massive change, if you start fighting each other, and particularly if you desire, you fall apart on political grounds, then you can't work as a team to address the risk. And that makes you very vulnerable. When we worked as a team, we've kept our death impact rate down low, we're managing this properly, the, one of the best in the world, Taiwan's better. If you don't work as a team, you get the mess that you're seeing in the United States and in parts of Europe. And so there's the fundamental lesson here. The transition to the future is not gonna be easy. We're gonna have a lot of challenges, but we'll only be able to do that if we dress as a, work as a team and maintain social cohesion. That's probably the most important thing to have. Is there any way of measuring social co cohesion? There's been lots of discussions of going away from GDP measurements to, to well-being. And there are a lot of aspects you can do with these surveys or, or, or take a measurement of how the society is working. I think on a, on a qualitative approach, we just listen to how our politicians were talking six months ago, eight months ago, and you listen to how they were talking three months ago. And you look at how the Australian people have responded amazingly well and realised that for the benefit of the community as a whole, individually, we have to make a few sacrifices. 
So you can see it in the behaviours of people, the less throwing of rocks at each other and yelling at each other and name calling. Other countries you can see where a president's tweeting and actually undermining things, you can see the other extreme. So there's enough indicators to see what it looks like when you work together. And the Prime Minister's announcement on Tuesday where he said, we need to look at the union and industry relationships and let's try and come to the table together and work something out together. Uh, a bit like you know, what the Hawke government did with Ukraine. Those are all good signs that socially we're prepared to work together to solve a very difficult problem. Fascinating. Um... Yeah, well, I'll, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. I, I actually have, uh, I've got one more question. Um, and this is not from me, but this is from me as a 15 year old who used to draw um, FA18s on his uh, textbook. Do you still get in a plane and um, are you still at, do you still pilot? Yeah, I've got a high performance glider. At the moment, it's sitting outside my office window in its trailer because uh, we're not allowed to take it to the airfield. <laughs> But no, I still fly the glider. I had a, my own power plane uh, until about two years ago. I still fly power aircraft as well. Um, it's not like flying a fighter aeroplane, but the pleasure and satisfaction I get out of flying the high-performance glider is as good as the satisfaction I got out of flying a fighter. It's something very different because in a glider, you're actually surfing in the air, if you want to put it that way, if it's mountain wave, or you're rising on currents of air, the thermals. And you have to really be conscious about the environment, the climate, the weather that's going on. And you're very much in the moment. And it's, I would imagine it's like being a surfer. I've only done body surfing. But you work with the waves and you actually utilise what is there in nature. And that's what gliding's about. It really is great. And, of course, it, whilst it's an individual aeroplane, there's a social side of it because, you know, people with the same interests, they go out there, they do it together, they support each other. So, yeah, I still fly. I still get all the pleasure out of it. Um, and at my age now, I don't think I want to get into a fighter aeroplane because <laughs> the G-forces actually damage your body. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, John. I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep watching the, the skies and see if I uh, see you up there. But thanks for taking the time to talk about this. You're most welcome, Kurt. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or... In June last year, the Australian Farm Institute, together with the Farmers for Climate Action, released a report, Changes in the Air defining the need for an Australian agricultural climate change policy. The report described the impact of climate change will have, the impact that climate change will have on the agricultural industry and described the current impact on agriculture, bad, and the cost of inaction, which is much, much worse. One of the authors, Richard Heath, is the executive director for the Australian Farm Institute, who we have on the line. Hello, Richard. Good, how are you? Nice to speak to you. Very nice to speak to you as well. Um, thank you for ta taking the time out. Um, no I'd just like to start by um, asking a pretty broad question, which is how exposed is Australian agriculture to climate change? Uh, the short answer is very. Um, we have always been uh, a country that has been heavily impacted by climate extremes in agricultural production. 
there are quite a few indexes that have measured the variability of uh, agricultural production over time and uh, Australian agricultural production has always been variable. Climate change is only going to um, enhance or accelerate that variability of production. So we're, we're quite exposed. Right. Um, so we hear a lot uh, today about adaptation. Um, and can you, can you tell us to it, to it straight, what is the agricultural industry's capacity to adapt if we do nothing to reduce our greenhouse gas emission? Oh, look, I think the adaptation story is a very strong story and, and a good news story in term, um, from Australian agriculture. There is no doubt that given that variability in climate that we've uh, experienced up until now and, and that the um, agriculture has evolved within, uh, our systems are highly efficient, are very good at dealing with those extremes and are very adaptable. Now, that's not to say by any stretch that there isn't still an awful lot of work to do uh, to become even more adaptable. Uh, but, you know, we are, we do lead the world in terms of understanding how to use um, uh, variable rainfall, how to uh, farm in extreme uh, temperature regimes, you know, compared to most other agricultural sectors around the world. Right. And, and what is the risk that inaction in plays on uh, food security, which is a big one? Yeah, so look, and I know that's been getting a bit of attention of late. Um, the, the fact is that by most measures of food security, which has to do with how much productive land we have per head of population, uh, the capacity that we have to... Um, you know, have good supply chains and transportation networks and all those sorts of things. We're actually a very food secure nation. Uh, we're not at risk of starving, put it that way. You know, we, we have an incredible productive capacity evidenced by the fact that we export something like 70% of the agricultural goods that we produce. But where people are, um, I guess, getting concerned about and, and what climate change will certainly accelerate or enhance is we will see from time to time shortages of specific categories of food from regions that have an extended drought, a flood, a cyclone, frost, whatever that climatic event might be that has a particular impact on the production of um, agriculture in a particular region. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that when you look at the total amount of calories that we can produce per head of population for the whole country, mm. as I said, that we're at risk of starving. Our, our food security is really good compared to um, virtually every other country that you look at. And again, looking at international rankings and the way these things are measured, we rank very, very highly in terms of food security. Um, but, you know, there, there will be those... Um, temporary shortages relating to climate impacts on specific regions and specific um, produce. Right. And looking into the future, um, the, the, the picture of food security, if we don't adapt, is not, not as rosy, is it? Um, again, it, it's more to do with how it's going to impact on specific commodities, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a different thing to the technical aspect of food security, which is whether we can 
feed ourselves as a nation, right? That, that, that's really not under threat. And I think that's important to understand because, uh, you know, it, it's as much to do with how the markets have evolved and market forces have evolved that steer agricultural production towards very concentrated and efficient production um, in particular areas rather than distributing that production over a wide area so that uh, we can always have something available even if there's a particular area that is heavily impacted by a climate event. Um, so again, you know, we, we're not going to run out of food. We might run out of a particular category, category of food because of a, a climate event um, and that's going to happen more often uh, into the future. So, you know, cyclones wiping out banana production, for instance. Um, and, you know, the one now that, you know, it's, it's probably more of a first world food security issue than a, than a fundamental one. Um, but the wine industry, uh, you know, really being impacted by changes in climate patterns and the impact that that's having on being able to produce wine in the traditional wine regions and, and wine regions moving to Tasmania, say, uh, where, the, where the climate is becoming more conducive. So there's those sorts of shifts going on um, in production that are uh, recognising how the, how the climate is shifting and, and what areas have become more and less suitable for food production. Right. And, and looking into the future, what is the impact of, um, of climate change on, on the agricultural industry? It goes into quite some detail in the report, mm. breaking down by various sectors. Would you just be able to give us a good, uh, an overview very quickly? Sure. So, look, um, I mean, I guess in one word, um, variable. Now, I know that I talked about how we've, we've um, experienced variable, variability up until now, but the increase in variability in terms of how that's going to impact on the ability to continue to run agricultural businesses is what's going to change significantly because we've evolved... Um, farm businesses and, and business systems that have become um, attuned to the way that they can build up equity between climate events, so whether that's a drought or a flood, uh, so that when there is a climate event, they basically have enough equity to get through that event. So in the case of drought, um, you may not receive any income for a couple of years or longer if it's a long drought, but periods between drought allow you to build enough up enough equity so that you can get through it. Now that's a really big generalization and obviously lots of people experience, you know, various versions of that. But as a broad generalization, that's sort of been the business model that's, that's been built up. Mm. Now what climate change is going to do is those periods in between droughts or extreme climate events um, are going to be shorter and they're much more likely to have other extreme events in those in those periods. So while in between a drought, you might experience more frosts, you might experience more heat waves um, and so on. And so the ability to build up those equity, build the equity back up so that you can get through those extreme events is going to be really drastically impacted. So the whole sort of risk um, of farming is gonna be um, uh, you know, quite, quite significant in the business environment around farming. Right. Um, one, uh, another thing that the report goes into, which is really, really interesting, is um, talking about a trickle, tri triple bottom line of agriculture. Can you just explain what that is to, to our listeners, please? 
Um, so look, it's understanding how that agriculture obviously uh, has a huge role in delivering environmental services um, and maintaining communities, rural and rental communities. So it's just understanding how agriculture continues to deliver um, uh, environmental, social and um, economic benefits. Uh, and again, how those things will be impacted by climate change as well, because just my previous point about how much more risky agriculture is going to become in the face of climate change, the ability, you know, that impacts um, farm businesses' ability to uh, continue to invest in um, local communities um, and in environmental outcomes as well. So all of those things are potentially under threat because of the increased risk that is placed on agricultural businesses because of climate change. Right. Um, so it seems that even at, at the moment, um, there's many, many agricultural industry groups uh, are taking climate change very seriously uh, and setting pretty ambitious targets. Dairy, Dairy Australia, for example, is set to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 30% uh, by the end of the year. Um, how much is the government assisting these, uh, the agricultural uh, industry in reducing greenhouse gases? Yeah, look, there are some programs available, but I think you've really identified what's being more significant is that the industries are you know, stepping up and, and really um, making it their priority to deliver outcomes. Uh, you've got the dairy industry, you've got the, just yesterday, um, the chicken meat and poultry industries uh, announced a really huge initiative uh, to to do um, very detailed measurements on their carbon footprint and, and work towards carbon neutrality. You've got the beef industry with their CN30 plan, which is the target of being carbon neutral by, by 2030. Um, and, you know, all these industries are taking those initiatives, A, because they just realise uh, how much of a threat climate change is to agricultural production and so mm. there's just an imperative to take action on that fundamentally um, but the other thing is just the uh, the business environment that uh, all those sectors are working in uh, is increasingly recognizing the need to deliver um, sustainable uh, produce that can dem that has a you know demonstrable impact on climate performance. Um, it's what the marketplace is demanding, rightfully so. Um, and so, you know, industries that are implementing programs, evidence-based programs that can show what they're doing in this um, area, are going to be more competitive. Um, and so, you know, getting back to one of my earlier points about being an export nation, um, we will be more competitive in global trade if we can demonstrate that we are um, sustainable and that sustainability going to climate impact and emissions as well. So um, that's really driving a lot of industry initiatives. Uh, government is certainly active um, in the space and providing some support. Um, there's the uh, Emissions Reduction Fund, which is now the um, changed name, uh, Climate Solutions Fund, which does um, provide a mechanism for farm businesses to um, undertake programs which reduce emissions from farming and be uh, financially incentivised to do so. Um, and, you know, there's a num number of other smaller programs uh, and then there's a quite a significant 
initiative at the moment that's just started called the um, Agriculture Stewardship Package, mm. which is all about, uh, again, understanding those, um, I guess, sort of certification processes where farms can actually provide an evidence base for the sustainability uh, of what they're doing to derive financial benefit from, from doing that. Fantastic. Um, my only criticism of the report was that it did not uh, diagnose existing stresses uh, in various industries from policies in place now. Um, I'm thinking the water policy in the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, having an immense impact on farmers on the East Coast. Um, and it's, it's, that policy is intrinsically related to the farmer's capacity to respond to climate change. What, what, what do you think about that criticism? Sure. So, look, we didn't specifically look at water policy um, as part of this report. Um, acknowledge that water policy is absolutely connected, or the um, uh, particularly in the Murray-Darling Basin, but all water policy across Australia uh, connected or needs to be connected to understanding uh, the impact on how much water is actually going to be available um, in, into the future as a result of climate impact. Uh, and we're certainly doing other work in that space, but it just wasn't in the particular scope of this report uh, to, to to cover that area. Yeah. Um, so how how was the report? Uh, how how was it received? And have you seen any action on on it since it was uh, published in June last year? Yeah. Look, it's been received um, really well. It's had a lot of coverage, um, and you know, almost um, directly after the report, very encouragingly. Um, the uh, all the state agricultural ministers with their their group, where um, they discuss you know, a policy at a state level, uh, resolved to form a, um, a a climate action policy essentially for agriculture in that group. So you know it, it, there is um, progress, which is great uh, happening, and you know I'd like to think that this report has at least pushed that discussion uh, along a little bit and, and helped in that process. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out, Richard. Um, we're going to link to uh, the report in the show notes so our listeners can read it in full. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have here. We hope you are able to get back to your lives safely and without too much hassle. I would like to thank our guests, Laura, Jean McKay, John Blackburn, and Richard Heath. Thank you so much to Viv at Salou Babette. I'm Kurt Johnson. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. You're listening to 3CR. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have here. We hope you are able to get back to your lives safely and without too much hassle. I would like to thank our guests, Laura, Jean McKay, John Blackburn, and Richard Heath. Thank you so much to Viv at Salou Babette. I'm Kurt Johnson. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. You're listening to 3CR.